For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, how members of the Missing in America Project are honoring departed veterans. Adiba Nelson shares her hopes and worries for her daughter's future. Find out about an unexpected connection between sunny Tucson and Arctic Norway. And I talk with author Ron Carlson about seeing his stories about the fake news of American tabloids brought to life on stage. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. For more than a century, Americans have set aside the last Monday of May to honor those who have fallen in military service to this country. For one group of Tucsonans, honoring departed soldiers is something they do year-round. The local chapter of the Missing in America Project tries to find word of recently deceased veterans and then make sure that these men and women are interred with full military honors. Zach Ziegler visited one of their ceremonies to bring us this story. The sun is starting to peak over the Catalina Mountains in Oro Valley, and Bob Day is at work directing traffic at Adair Funeral Home. This is an easy out. The parking lot is filling up with motorcycles, not a typical sight for Saturday morning. Many of those showing up are in leather vests and jackets with patches denoting that the wearer is a veteran. Others are in police uniforms from a variety of law enforcement organizations, sheriffs from multiple counties and police departments from all over Southern Arizona. They arrive, shake hands, hug, and are happy to see each other once again. The assembled are called together by Ed Torres, one of the event's organizers. All right, good morning. Torres is the Pima County Coordinator for the Missing in America Project, the organization responsible for today's ceremony. He's speaking with those who have shown up to fill them in on what's about to happen. We're fixing to go into the chapel. Those that want to participate go ahead, can go ahead and go in there. If you don't want to participate, Stay out here, just be mindful that there is a service going on. Part of what Torres and his counterpart, Sean Fund, are doing right now is finding volunteers to carry the cremated remains of veterans, many of whom were homeless or impoverished when they passed. Fund is the law enforcement liaison for the group. He helped organize the large showing of officers who will act as guides for the motorcade. He tells the veterans and supporters that have assembled they will not forget this day. Believe me when I say that, I still identify with the first time I ever carried cremains and it had a big effect on me and that's why I'm here. Fund hands out white gloves to those who will volunteer as they head into the funeral home. James Albert Balthan, United States Air Force. Each person gets a slip of paper with the name of whom they will carry. Then the chaplain offers a short eulogy and prayer. Every single one of us who served took an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That oath does not come with an expiration date. Bob Day, who was conducting traffic outside, is now doing the same inside, walking people through how to pick up the urn they will carry. The captain will be there, so the first person will walk to there to pick up his cremains. A turn, uh, we've been carrying left over right. There's probably some back and forth between branches of the service, whether it's right over left. The process begins. 
The volunteers pick up the brass urns of 30 servicemen and one military spouse and carry them out of the funeral home. The remains are carried down a walkway that is lined with American flags to a special hearse trailer attached to a three-wheeled motorcycle. Once they are loaded, the chaplain offers one more prayer for safe travel. Please have your angels spread their wings of protection and keep us all safe. The flags are rolled up and stacked in the back of Fun's SUV, and organizers go over the route one more time. The, the first Lacanada uh, making a ride all the way up to Tangerine. Which devolves into a brief debate about citrus. Tangerine is a small orange. Before an officer gets things back on track. What time you pulling out? No later than nine. Yeah, for about five minutes. And then they're on their way to the new veteran cemetery in Marana. Come up this way and line up together. Some people arrive at the ceremony ahead of the procession in order to prep for the arrival. As they prepare, the motorcycles can be heard driving up Luckett Road to the cemetery. The hearse pulls up and each urn is ceremoniously handed to an active duty member of the military branch in which the deceased served. The ceremony begins when planes fly overhead and perform a maneuver known as the missing man formation. Then, the chaplain offers an invocation. Our hearts are saddened by the loss of these great warriors who devoted their lives to sustain our freedom. Fund and others from the Missing in America Project speak. I am often humbled by their respective service, their love of country, and sense of duty. The last roll call is taken, each name is read a final time, James and a bell H. is tolled. U.S. Army, Vietnam. Haring, Robert E., U.S. Army, Vietnam. Then, an Army Honor Guard offers a 21-gun salute, and a bugler plays taps. Flags are presented to the families of deceased soldiers who are in attendance. Sir, on behalf of the President of the United States, the United States Army, and a grateful nation, please accept this flag as a symbol of our appreciation for your loved one's honorable and faithful service. Bob Day, who acted as Master of Ceremonies, closes the ceremony. Okay, we are now down to one of the two most important aspects of today. The veterans are just about to be picked up again and escorted down to their actual final resting places. The active duty service members pick up the urns and carry them to their individual niche in the columbariums. Once the ashes are in place, the chaplain offers a final eulogy for the fallen. The idea of a memorial is nothing new. In the book of Joshua, we're reminded of the memorial stones that the 12 tribes were asked to carry across the river to remember the Lord parting the ways of the water for them. The ancient Celts used to have a cairn of remembrance. Young warriors would go off to battle and place a small granite stone on a pile. After the battle, they would return and remove a stone. 
The stones that remained were the warriors that did not return. Then, crews from the cemetery bolt the plaques in place over the niches. As they do so, many of the assembled say their goodbyes to each other and ride off. Chom Fun says many of those who were just laid to rest were in a situation where, if not for an organization such as Missing in America Project, their remains could have gone unclaimed. There are a few that have been actually recovered from the coroner's office. They had passed on the street. There are others that are in nursing homes who were singles. They had no family. But some of those who were buried had family who chose to wait for their loved one to be interred with full military honors. Fun says that while today's ceremony is about the 31 people being laid to rest, he hopes that it resonates beyond that. I hope at the very least that the younger generation will observe something like this and their parents will reinforce the point of, we owe our veterans for the freedoms every day we don't even think about. But ultimately, the day has carried the slogan of the Missing in America project. Never forgotten never forgotten and it never will be. Not as long as I and other people are here to recognize them for their service. They will never be forgotten. That story was produced by Zach Ziegler. There is a companion TV story about Missing in America airing this Saturday and Sunday on Arizona Illustrated. That's at 6.30 on PBS Channel 6. You can see that video now on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Adiba Nelson is a Tucson author, activist, mother, diva, and queen bee. I first became aware of Adiba when I read an essay that was picked up by the Huffington Post in 2015 about raising her daughter. Emery was born with a rare form of cerebral palsy called bilateral schizencephaly. It affects her motor skills and speech, but not her mind. This essay is about how it may affect her future. When the challenges are stacked, raising my black daughter with special needs. I am Adiba Nelson. There's something that happens for most women when they find out they are pregnant. After the shock and awe wears off, the dreaming begins. Will they be ballet dancers or biomedical engineers? Fighter pilots or firefighters? Girl or boy? Today, though, we have another question to add to the mix. Will they live to see their 18th birthday? Or will they be cut down by the violence that permeates our society? As a parent to a child with special needs, I have another question to add in. How will I help my child exceed the imposed limits of her disability, stay safe despite the perceived limits of her cognition, and stay alive regardless of her gender and race? These are the questions I find myself pondering every day. My daughter is a beautiful, squishy-faced seven-year-old, full of sass and silly who is as bright as the day is long. She rises to the challenges set before her, and the only reward she seeks is a hug and some death. She's the kid that will hug you only to sneak in an underarm tickle. She's also the kid who once her mind is made up, you might as well watch paint dry because she is not budging. She will find a million different ways to get her point across if she feels you just aren't getting it. 
or if she is feeling disrespected. She's the perfect combination of unbridled joy, sneaky sass, and steely-eyed determination. Currently, it is serving her well because she has me, her mama. However, one day she is going to leave home. She won't be under the watchful eye of mom, making sure everyone knows who this child of mine is and how to understand and respect her. My daughter will be left to her own devices, armed with the skills I've taught her and her idiosyncrasies that play an integral role in her general success. However, these same idiosyncrasies will inevitably be interpreted as hard-headed, stubborn, argumentative, and backtalk by a society that has no idea how to hold the aspiring black woman in the same field of vision as the aspiring white woman. How do I raise her so that she knows that these attributes are her superpowers and not the world's kryptonite, yet explain to her that the world will expect her to tamp them down because A, know your place, little black girl, and B, special needs. How do I raise her to know that her body is her own and to defend it as such when there is a fear that turns my blood ice cold when I think that one day someone with a name tag might decide that her inability to verbally communicate means that she cannot say no? At a time when the killing of unarmed black men and women seems more like sport for hobby, and women are being raped while they are unconscious and the defense is they didn't say no, it seems incredibly cruel to have to tackle all of that and special needs at the same time. My daughter lies at one of the most fragile intersections of them all, and yet I am raising her to break the boundaries that will be placed around her. Am I insane? No. I am her mother. I am raising her to fight for visibility in a world that would rather she didn't exist. I am teaching her to crush the paradigm of special needs and color outside the lines. At times, I have to teach her teachers and educational aides that she does not have a behavior problem. They simply are not listening. The limit for tolerable allowances is unquestionably shorter when it comes to black children. For example, last year it was reported that my daughter was having some behavior issues, and at one point she was even sent to the principal's office. Now, I am not saying they were 100% wrong, but they were 100% wrong. On the surface, yes, it looked like a behavioral issue. But then my husband asked our daughter one key question. Does going to school make you sad? My sweet seven-year-old looked at him with tears in her eyes, frowned, and squeaked out a barely audible yes. And that's when it hit me, and I started with the questions. And that was that. My daughter didn't have a behavior problem. She had an understanding problem. And the problem wasn't hers, it was theirs. But no one had taken the time to explore fully the range of what my daughter was feeling and expressing. As her mother, I must continuously educate even the most educated because the chips are stacked and not in our favor. However, they don't know about us. We play to win. 
and we never fold. You can find much more of Adiba Nelson online, especially at her website, The Full Nelson. The beats are by Benby. In life, there are some things you will never find unless you're actively looking for them. Or, in this case, listening. Here is Nick O'Gara. Bear with us. Don't turn off the radio. It's supposed to sound like that. Well, it's not supposed to sound like that, but there's a reason. This is a recording. But if you listen closely, you can hear that it's us, Arizona Public Media. Why, you may ask, would we play a distorted recording of our own station? That sliver of sound was picked up by an antenna thousands of miles from Tucson in a place called Kongsfjord, which is a fishing village in Arctic Norway. The story goes, one morning a few months ago, some of us here arrived to work to find a handful of messages from men in Scandinavian countries. And they all had things in common. They were enthusiastic, Everyone contained a short sound recording and also a request. They wanted someone to confirm that the recording was, in fact, us. We decided to reach out to one of the inquirers. Hello. Uh, Hi, is this OJ? This is OJ speaking. Hi, we made it. That's OJ Sogdal. To be clear, O.J. was Skyping with us from Copenhagen. He was there on a work trip. O.J. and two of his friends share a hobby. They're amateur radio enthusiasts, and they consider themselves part of a worldwide group called DXers. Their particular brand of this hobby is to collect signals from difficult-to-catch radio stations. O.J. and his friends operate an antenna project in the north of Norway, in that fishing village. They build big antennas and use them to catch far-off radio signals. It's definitely our main hobby for all of us. Like a stamp collector, a coin collector who finds this really rare coin. And they picked up our AM signal from 5,000 miles away. Then one of us uh, discovered this unusual signal on 1550 AM with NPR programming. And there are not that many NPR programs on 1550. So we suspected this was you. And then uh, after a few hours, we realized it was actually KUAC in Arizona, which has been on the long time wanted list. So uh, Arizona is really a very exclusive state for us. Exclusive, remember, because these guys are like collectors. So this is akin to finding a rare coin from a faraway country. Like most of us, they could easily use the Internet to stream virtually every radio station in existence. So why bother? Do you want a long story or a short story? I, I have this hobby. I had this hobby since I was a kid. Actually, I bought my first radio when I was seven. And then uh, when I was about 12 or 13 years old, I realized that I could actually send letters to the radio stations. So he wrote to stations as a kid through into adulthood. But as I grew older, I wanted more challenges. That's essentially what he and his friends did with us. I'm definitely pronouncing this wrong, but the friends I referred to are Ulla who first discovered the signal, and Bjarne, whose audio you heard at the beginning. Bjarne has a summer home in that Norwegian fishing village. None of them lives there, but that's where their antennas are, monitoring 24 hours a day. OJ says it's not the first time Arizona public media has been picked up in Scandinavia, but it's pretty rare, and all the conditions need to work together. 
For example, Aurora Borealis, or the Northern Lights, really can ruin any chance of catching rare stations. When the sun is quiet, so there is no emissions from the sun, and it's dark, uh, the conditions uh, can be right. It's really a lot of things that, uh, that has an impact. It's a wintertime activity, because up in Arctic Norway, there is sometimes round-the-clock sun. And there's yet another concern for these three in the fishing village. During summer, this is a grazing area for the reindeer, so we can't have the antennas up there. The cold, dark, reindeerless winters make the Norwegian fishing village an ideal spot for our enthusiastic signal catchers. They're not alone either, and nor is Arizona Public Media. We checked, and a station in British Columbia reported they had been contacted by DXers from Finland. There's a group right here in town, the Southern Arizona DX Association. They're made up mostly of retired engineers, and they specialize in two-way, long-distance radio communication. It's a worldwide community, by the nature of the practice. But not everybody gets their enthusiasm. Some stations that we write to, they don't really care. So, and they don't find it that exciting that we, we, we hear them because we could have listened to them on the internet. But for us, it's, uh, it's not the same to listen to the signal on the internet compared to, to catching it with real radio waves. So it's really fun when, uh, when you give feedback like you have done. These are also the things that make it great fun to, to be a DXer. For more information about the group, including photos and a link to their website, join us online. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Nick O'Gara. Before they became a big part of the internet, stories about psychic events, Bigfoot, and UFOs were most commonly spread through tabloids. Especially in the 1980s, these publications enjoyed large circulations and very little demand for their stories to be accurate. Ron Carlson is a novelist and poet from Utah with strong connections to Arizona State University where he taught creative writing. Carlson has been recognized with honors from the National Endowment for the Arts, and his stories have been included in many best-of literary anthologies. His tabloid-inspired collection, News of the World, has also been adapted for the stage. The Winding Road Theater Company is presenting performances this weekend with stories of ghosts, cursed objects, and a domestic love triangle with Bigfoot himself on stage at the Temple of Music and Art. I spoke with Ron Carlson as he prepared to travel to Tucson to see how his work has been transformed. It was my first collection of stories, most of them contemporary American stories about family life. Uh, but then I got <laughs> off in the middle of it, and in each of the three first collections of stories, the middle sections were anything that was off the wall. I mean, I've had a lot of fun as a writer, and sometimes curious things strike you, and you follow them as well as you can, and so I began to write these tabloid headline stories like Bigfoot Stole My Wife and others, and a couple of actors took them as audition pieces, and then one thing led to another, and so they're performed from time to time. It's sort of a surprise. It's very sweet. Why is it that tabloids appealed to you as a source of inspiration? Well, that goes back a long time. Actually, I was in England 35 years ago and in London, of course, that's, there's a, that's a place like, like Tokyo and Paris, lots of newspapers. And uh, the News of the World was my favorite paper because they could really write a scurrilous headline. I mean, some, someone would have been smashed 
by an elephant, but the headline would read, flat as a pancake, you know, just just good stuff, really. But the thing about tabloids is everybody knew they were way out there. You had the news, you had discussions of the news among educated people, and then you have the tabloids, a kind of sketchy entertainment on the fringe. But that's crept in now, and so now you get people who talk about UFOs. You know, I wrote the story about UFOs, I wrote it in the early 80s, uh, you know, and um, I had a lot of fun with it, but people talk about UFOs, conspiracy, withheld information, and then pretty soon that leads to the next conspiracy. Anytime there's been a national crime, that becomes the subject of conspiracy. There's some real strange things that get what they call traction now, and there's a great bit of our media that understands your job is not to inform, it's to agitate, you know, just get people upset and so that's working really well, too. <laughs> yeah, it's working working really well for some people. Yeah. Um, I grew up in the 1970s, and like a lot of youngsters, I was obsessed with stories of the unexplained, UFOs, Bigfoot. So imagine my excitement when I am told about your play and I stumble across the advertisement for it, and I, I find out that Bigfoot himself is actually a part of the play. And then today, I, I actually got to hear him speak. I am Bigfoot. The Bigfoot. You've been hearing about me for some time now, and maybe even seen an artist's rendering of, and perhaps even a phony photograph or two. The one that really makes me sick purports to show me standing in a stream in Northern California. Let me say this. Bigfoot never gets his feet wet. And I've only been to Northern California once, long enough to see Redding and Eureka, both too quiet for the kind of guy I am. Lo and behold, Ron, I was so surprised to find out he's a pretty normal guy. He he's relatable. <laughs> were, okay. were you were you surprised when you found this out about Bigfoot? Many times, what happens is you start with a complaint. I mean, he feels misunderstood. Yeah. But you know who doesn't <laughs> get in line, Bigfoot? So he brings his complaint, and when you write something like that, you you tie on and you hold on and you you go as far as you can with what seems reasonable. Um, obviously, you don't want a caricature, but anyway, yeah, I was surprised. Each of the guys, even the guy who's in Bigfoot Stole My Wife, he's, when I started these things, I looked at that, I had that headline on my wall. Finally, it struck me. I thought, oh, that's no good. That's a bad idea. That's got to hurt. Yeah. Yeah, I went into each of these things and tried to get as much as I could from these, from these normal people in extraordinary situations. My guest was author Ron Carlson and actor Steve Wood portrayed the part of Bigfoot. The Winding Road Theater Company presents News of the World and other stories by Ron Carlson this weekend at the Temple of Music and Art in Tucson. Carlson will see the play on Saturday and stay for a discussion and Q&A with the audience. There's a link on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. Our production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.